We're going to pray and uh, get started on our study of Romans chapter 3 this morning. So let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for the food. Thank you for the friendships that are building around these tables. I pray that you continue to make that happen as we uh, grow closer, not only to you, but to one another as we study the word together, as we fellowship together, talk together, share together. Lord, we ask this morning that you would take chapter 3 and open it up to us, that we would understand it, that we would uh, be convicted by it, that your Holy Spirit would uh, speak to each and every one of us individually what we need to hear, what we need to walk away with. Uh, from this incredible chapter. And so, Father, we, we pray that we, more than anything else, that we would understand increasingly more uh, just the, the incredible nature of the gospel, what, what you've done for us, and that, Father, it would spur us to do more for you out of gratitude. So we love you, and we give you this time together, and we just pray that you would guide us and direct us and be with us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we're going to do chapter 3. So if you've got your Bibles... Open up to chapter 3. Um, we are talk, taking bigger chunks, and so I, I really want to encourage you to uh, do the homework. It doesn't take you long, but if nothing else, read the chapter multiple times before you come, and it'll, it'll help you kind of get prepared. Uh, the more I study the, the book of Romans and the more time I spend in it, uh, what jumps out at me is that it's we come to the Bible oftentimes, guys, with a a prescriptive mentality. What I mean by that is we read the Bible for what we can get out of it. And you may say, well, isn't that the point? Um, yes, but I think we have been trained to, um, we want five easy steps. We want three tips, you know, prescriptive. What do I need to do? So I read the Bible, tell me what I need to do. And the Bible does that, but not always. So like in Romans, it's less prescriptive telling me what I need to go do than it is descriptive, telling me what's already been done. So as we study the book of Romans, what I want us to keep wrestling with is it's, it's not going to give us a whole lot of things to go do as much as it's trying to get you to understand what's already been done for you, the nature of the gospel, what God has done for you. So think about that as we go into this chapter this morning. So I do want to read the chapter. I know it's a lot, little bit longer than we normally read, but I want to read it because I think it's important to keep it in its context. So bear with me as we read through chapter 3. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does that faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? For if through my lie God's truths abound to his glory... Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin 
as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive, the venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes." Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus." Then what becomes a boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What in the world does this mean? <laughs> I have no idea. No. Now, this is, this is a lot of information. He seems to be, there's a lot of questions in this chapter, right? He asks a whole lot of questions. But we have to go back to the end of chapter 2 to kind of get where he's going. And you remember last week, he ended with these words, No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. So he's talking to, once again, Christians living in Rome, worshiping in various house churches, and he's written this letter to help them and encourage them to understand the scope of the gospel. But this audience is made up of both converted Jews and converted Gentiles, worshiping together, and he's talking to both camps, and he kind of goes back and forth. He'll talk to the Gentiles, then he'll talk to the Jews, and in this part of the book, he's really talking to the, to the Jewish believers, very specifically talking to them. So he says this at the end of chapter 2, that one is a Jew, no one is a Jew who is one outwardly, but it's inward. So that leads us to this whole series of questions that he's dealing with, and these are questions that Paul evidently had to deal with on a regular basis and he's, he's bringing them up. There's nobody really asking him because he's written a letter, but he's dealing with them because he knows they're going through the minds of the people in this audience. And what I want you to understand is when we look at these questions, they're all me-centered because that's the way we think. We always think, well, well what about me? And this whole idea of the gospel is interesting because when you talk about the gospel, what God has done for me, we almost immediately go, yeah, but what do I need to do? What's my part? Don't I need to do something for you, God? 
And so we always bring it back to us, and Paul's not going to let us do that. He's going to keep pointing us back to it's about what he's done for you. So let, just look at some of these questions. We're not going to dig into every one of them, but he says, what's the advantage of being a Jew? That's the natural question after the end of chapter 2, right? Well, you're not a Jew just because you've got circumcision. It's, it's of the heart, not of the skin. And so the people are asking them, what advantage is there to be a Jew? Why, why bother? It, does, it doesn't seem to help me based on what you said in chapter 2. Is there any value in the, the whole circumcision thing? And you, can, you can imagine a Jew sitting there going, well, then why in the world did I have this done to me? You know, if there's, it doesn't seem to help. It doesn't seem to have any value. And then they ask, just because they were unfaithful, does that mean God will be unfaithful? In other words, talking about the Jews, just because the Jewish people were unfaithful and never did really keep the law, does that mean God's not going to keep his promises? See how their, their brains are thinking? And that's how we think. Well, if I, if I didn't keep my part, does that mean God's not going to keep his part? Well, he's going to answer that question. Isn't it unfair then for him to punish us? You know, where they're going there is they're basically saying, okay, if, if he gave us the law and I can't keep the law and I didn't keep the law, then why in the world is he punishing me? He set me up for failure, so why is he punishing me? And again, it's a very me-centered way of thinking. And so there's all these questions. I, I counted up at least 15 different questions in a, in a single chapter that he raises. And, and it's the way we think as human beings. But all throughout the book so far, chapter one, chapter two, he's been making a point. What's the point? No one is righteous before God, not even the Jews. Nobody's righteous. He spent two chapters setting it up. He's con continuing the process of getting us to understand both the people in his audience and us today. No one stands before God as righteous. Not the moral elitist, not the rule keeper, not the person who's gone to church ever since they were a, a baby. Nobody is righteous, including the Jews. And so we go back to verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1. He's talking about the righteousness of God. Where do we get righteousness from? How do we stand before God as justified right in his eyes? How does that happen? Well, the Gentiles don't have any way of making that happen, and neither do the Jews, even though, what, they had the law. They couldn't keep the law. They couldn't obey his commands to the degree that they could stand before him as blameless, so everybody's on equal ground. It's the righteousness, the righteousness we need, the world needs, comes from one place. It comes from God. So, as he said over and over again, nobody has an excuse. Nobody can st stand there and go, well, God, I, I, but I didn't know. I, I'm clueless. No. Even with the Gentiles, it's wired into their system. It's in nature around them. They know the difference between right and wrong in their conscience and their hearts. That's why every culture has some semblance of right and wrong, ethical standards, even moral standards. It's wired into us, and yet no one has excuse, not even the Jews who had the law. And if you think about it, why did God give the Jews the law? He picked out one people group and he said, I'm going to give you my exact standard for living. Why did he do that? So that they would do it? No. So that this one people group who he 
particularly chose, set apart, set aside, called holy, made him his own, gave them his law. He showed them that even with all that, they couldn't achieve righteousness. They were an example of Here's the law. Here's everything. I've given you everything. I've appeared to you. I've given you the temple. I've given you the sacrificial system. And you still can't achieve the righteousness you need to stand before me. And he's really just showing that everyone needs the same thing, the righteousness of God. That's why he starts out in the early part of this book saying, it is the gospel of God. He has to provide it. So even the, the people of God, the Jewish people, are just as guilty as the Gentiles. We talked about this last week, but their problem was they thought they were immune from judgment. Why? Because we're God's people. We were chosen by God. They had the law. They knew God personally. They knew what he expected. Why? Because they had the law. They knew what he wanted. And they, they had circumcision. They had this mark. I had an interesting conversation one of the guys... Uh, this last week on Tuesday, Tuesday night, or this week, when weeks are running together. And I taught last week's lesson on Tuesday night out in Alito, and he came up afterwards and he goes, what's, what's this whole thing with circumcision? You know, it's interesting that God made them get circumcised. It was a sign, but nobody ever saw it. He said, you didn't walk around going, hey, look at me. I've been circumcised. No, that, nobody ever saw it. And I think that's interesting that, yeah, it was a hidden sign. Who was it for? It was for you to know every time you did your business, you were reminded of who you belonged to. Every time you had sexual relations with your wife, it reminded you who you belonged to. It wasn't for the Gentiles to see because you didn't walk around. And the Jewish people were very private people. But it was a mark. But it, here it says... You're not immune from judgment just because you have this mark on you, just because you have the law, and, and just because you think you're teachers and guides, which they should have been because of everything that God had given, but they really weren't. They thought they were immune. They thought they didn't have to suffer the judgment of God. And that's why in chapter 2, we talked about last week, he says, you, the judge, practice the very same things as the people who don't have the law, who don't have circumcision. You're no better off. You blaspheme the name of God among the Gentiles because of the way you live your life. And you practice the same things. You do the same things. And then even though, yes, you're my chosen people, I've given you all these things, you, you're just like everyone else. So what? You're guilty. You have no excuse. So what's the advantage then of being a Jew? And you can imagine the Gentiles in the audience are sitting there. If they didn't say it out loud, they're thinking it through their head. They're going, what is the advantage of being a Jew? These guys have always kind of thought they were the top of the food ladder and cream of the crop. And man, based on what God's saying or Paul's saying, they don't, they don't seem to have any advantage. And see, that's not what Paul's saying. Because it's interesting, what is the advantage He's, he's going to say there is an advantage to being a Jew, but it's not what you think it is. It's, it's not based on all this stuff. Because what he's talking about is what? Righteousness. The whole, this whole chapter is about the righteousness of God, not the righteousness of men. It's as we started out day one, it's God's righteousness, his brand of righteousness versus our brand of righteousness. Man trying to become righteous and God 
making men righteous. That's what he's talking about. See, Paul's dealing with justification. How do sinful people like you and I, sinful people just like we're living in his day, how do they get right with God? And it's the same for everybody, whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile, whether you're rich, whether you're poor, whether you're smart, whether you're dumb. It doesn't matter, male, female, we all achieve righteousness in the same way. And everybody stands before God as what? Unrighteousness, unrighteous in his eyes. Because no one is righteous. He's going to make that very clear in this chapter. So, when it comes to the kind of righteousness that God is looking for, is there any advantage to being a Jew? Now, what do you think the answer is? Yeah, it's, it's no, right? Is there any value of being circumcised? What's the answer? No. But see, Paul doesn't say none whatsoever, which is what you expect him to say. There's no advantage. Because he's kind of setting us up right? He's asking these kind of rhetorical questions. We think they're rhetorical. There's no advantage to being a Jew, right? Well, certainly not, Paul, because you've just told us there's not. There's no value in being circumcised, right? Certainly not. But what does he say? Much in every way, which is really kind of interesting. And I think they're sitting there in the audience going, wait a minute. You just said the law, the circumcision, all that stuff doesn't matter. Now you're saying much in every way. But listen to what he says. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, the words of God, through the prophets. They were trusted with information that wasn't given to who? The Gentiles. They were given something that somebody else didn't have. They were entrusted Romans tells us they are, in chapter 9, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. From, from their race came who? Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who is God over all. See, in chapter 9, he's going to expand on this. They do have an advantage. What's the advantage? All these things. They have the law. They're, they're, um, they've been adopted by God. They've seen his glory in the tabernacle. The pillar of fire, the pillar of smoke, they've had so many privileges. There is an advantage, but has the advantage benefited them? No, because they didn't look for righteousness in the way that God intended. They were looking for it from themselves. It was a self-centered form of righteousness, self-righteousness. So there was an advantage there was a benefit. They were entrusted with the oracles of God, but yet they, even with all the advantages, what does it say? They were unfaithful. They didn't keep the law of God. They didn't live up to the standards. They knew what to do and they didn't do it. And if you've never studied the history of Israel, go back and read it and just watch the pattern of unfaithfulness and the faithfulness of God and the unfaithfulness of Israel. They were unfaithfulness. They were unfaithful. But does their faithlessness, lack of faith in God, nullify the faithfulness of God? No. Is God going to turn against them? Now, there are those today who teach and believe that because Israel was unfaithful, God is done with them. 
And it's, it's sometimes called replacement theology and that we as the church have replaced Israel. They blew it. They're done. It's over. And all the promises made to Israel belong to us. We don't believe that as a church. We believe God is a faithful God and every promise that God made to the patriarchs, every promise God made to David, every promise God made to Solomon, every promise he made to Abraham, he is going to keep even in spite of their what? Unfaithfulness because God is faithful. See, God brought about the Messiah in spite of the fact that they were unfaithful and he had to send them into captivity and then he had to restore them to the land in order that the Messiah might come. It wasn't because they deserved it. It was because he was not yet done. He was going to bring his son. And someday he's going to send his son back. And someday his son's going to sit on a throne in Jerusalem on this earth. And the people of Israel, many of them will worship alongside us. Because he's not done. So their unfaithfulness does not cause God to be unfaithful. He's always faithful. So he says, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? See, the Jews were unrighteous. But it shows God's righteousness. Think about it. Why are we here today? To worship God. But how can we worship God? The only reason you and I can worship God is because, in a real way, because of the unfaithfulness of the Israelites. That God brought his son to earth. They rejected his son for the most part. Some believed, but most did not. He was crucified. He rose again. And then the gospel went to who? Us. And we are the beneficiaries. And later on in the same book, he's going to say, and our coming to faith in Christ is going to make them jealous. And they're going to come to Christ. See, this whole thing is God's plan. It's not our plan. He's not done yet. Their unrighteousness actually shows the righteousness of God. That he's got a way to make Jews and Gentiles right with him. And it can only be done in his way. See, their self-righteousness didn't work. It never works. Self-righteousness does not work. They couldn't justify themselves with God any more than you can justify yourself with God. Any more than any religion on the earth and every other religion on the earth except Christianity is built on what? Self-righteousness. I have to please God, whatever that God may be i got to live a certain way or he will not love me and I will not get to go to heaven, nirvana, whatever they believe in, whatever that destiny is, I will not get there unless I keep God happy. That is self-righteousness. And this whole book is about, no, it's God's righteousness. It's what he has to do. Now, I know you're sitting there going, man, you've said this every stinking week. Can we move on to something else? There is nothing else. And if we don't grasp that as believers in Jesus Christ, if we don't relish that, if we don't glory in that, that I have received righteousness from God that I never could have achieved on my own, I'll never fully appreciate the gospel. And you know how that shows up in your life? You abuse the gospel. You take advantage of the gospel. You snub your nose to the God. Yeah, I'm a believer. I'm going to heaven. 
then why don't you live like it? Because you don't truly believe the nature and the glory and the power and the incredible gift of the gospel. That's why he's writing this whole letter. It's not prescriptive. It's not telling you, hey, go out and do these good things. Should we do good things? Yes, the Bible's very clear. But he's trying to tell you, relish the fact that something incredible has already been done for you that even allows you to do good things. See, we're not immune from the law. We're not free from the law. We should keep the law, but not in order to be saved, but to bring glory and honor to our God because we have the power to do so that we never had before. I can keep the law. Why? Because I have the Spirit of Christ living within me. I don't do it to please God. I don't do it to gain favor. I don't do it to get saved. I do it because I am saved. And I want to be like His Son. And I want to please my Father. Not so it will take me to heaven because I'm already going there. My name's already written up there. There's a place being prepared for me up there. So that's why we keep going over this over and over again. He says in verse 3, they were ignorant of the righteousness of God. This is in chapter 10. Listen to this. They were ignorant of the righteousness of God, speaking of the Jews, and seeking to establish their own righteousness. They did not submit to God's righteousness. See what he's saying about the Jews? They They were so blind to the fact that you will never pull this off. I need you to come to me. I've been reading through, uh, right now I'm reading through chapter 11 of Hebrews, which is that great hall of faith of the patriarchs, talking about Noah and Enoch and, and Abel and Abraham and all these patriarchs of the Old Testament. And it says, by faith Abraham, by faith Enoch, by faith Abel, by faith Noah, by faith Rahab, by faith Sarah. Over and over again it says, by faith. Well, wait a minute. Jesus hadn't come yet. No, but they were living by faith on the future promises of God, what he had said was going to happen, things they could not see. Faith, it says, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. And they were looking and waiting for and hoping in the promises of God that most of them never got to see. It was faith. They lived by faith. And yet the Jews kept trying to live up to this standard and they never realized you'll never pull it off. Come to me by faith. Come to me realizing that you can't do this. This is something God has to do for you. And God was trying to get the people of Israel to understand, but no, what did they do? No, we'll make our own righteousness. And it all resulted in unrighteousness. So the question is, is God being unrighteous? Is he unfair? Is he unjust? Did he set them up for failure? Did he just basically say, try to do this? It'd be like, you know, setting your kid up for failure, you know, holding up a ball and saying, hit this ball and they can't reach it. And you laugh, (laughs) loser. Is that what God was doing? Hey, Israel, here's this, here's these commandments that you'll never keep. Try. It's going to be so, hey, Jesus, Holy Spirit, come over here. Watch this. This is great. Watch these guys flail around. Is that what God was doing? No, God was trying to get mankind to understand that our attempts at righteousness, our attempts at getting right with Him will never avail us anything. 
And it's to get us to appreciate that when he sent his son, we would appreciate it. We would understand it. We would relish it. God is not unjust. Douglas Moo in his commentary on Romans says, Paul seems to be grappling here with a common Jewish belief that God's righteousness, his covenant faithfulness, gave the Jews virtual immunity from judgment. Hey, we're yours. We belong to you. It's like America for many, many years when I was growing up. You know, this, we always, you know, this is a Christian country. We belong to God. This is God's country. And we're immune from judgment. Hey, guys, we are not immune from judgment. We're not a Christian country. I don't care what you believe about the founders of our country and whether they were deists or Christians. or We are not a Christian country at this point in time by any stretch of the imagination. And we are certainly not immune from God's judgment any more than Israel was because they went into judgment. They suffered judgment. And the idea that I could somehow be immune from the judgment of God was a dangerous place for them to go and a very dangerous assumption for them to make. So is God unjust because he inflicted wrath on the Israelites? By no means. Because if God was unjust in judging them, how could he judge the world? If God was not fair with Israel, what right does he have to judge us? But he has every right because he wasn't unjust. He wasn't unfair. He was perfectly just because he had given them his law. He had, he had showed them everything they need to do knowing, yes, they cannot do this. But why did he do it? So that in the right time, at the perfect time, he would send his son as what? The righteousness of God. You want to know how to get right with me? I have to provide it for you. It, it's a gift. It's, it's a grace gift that none of us earn, none of us achieve on our own. It has to be provided. So if he's unrighteous in dealing with the Jews, we're all in trouble. But he's not. That's his point in this, this chapter. He's not unfair. He's not been unrighteous in dealing with the Jews. He's been highly righteous. And here's the, here's the deal. God's not done with the Jews yet. You've got to read the rest of the story, right? You've got to read the rest of the book. Go, go into Revelation and you understand that there's a day when God will do what? He will redeem his people. Just like he redeemed them out of slavery in Babylon, he's going to redeem them out of slavery to this world, out of their blindness. And they will, during the tribulation period, there will be thousands upon thousands of Jews who come to faith in Christ, even after the church is gone. Why? Because they suddenly deserve it? Because they suddenly wake up and go, oh, now I get it? No, it's because Jesus Christ will work in their hearts and they will come to faith in him. See, God's not done. God is faithful. God's got a plan. God's working his plan. He's a faithful judge. And his judgment as judge is never impartial. It's never biased and it's always just. And that's important for us, again, sitting on this side of, of Calvary, this side of our faith, having placed our faith in Christ, is to never forget that our God is just. And here's the reality that every man in this room faces, that every one of us deserve to die. Every one of us deserve the judgment of God. Every one of us deserve to be crucified. Every one of us deserve to, to face eternal separation from God and yet, what did we receive? Mercy, forgiveness, and righteousness. Through who? Through Christ.
God provided it. And if that does not get you excited, if that does not kind of blow your hair back, then, then I don't know what to do. You've become numb to the incredible nature of the gift. And if you're working your way to try to please God and sanctify yourself and do the right thing and keep him happy, then you, you, you don't understand the gospel. You really don't. And my goal, Paul's goal, is to get you to understand the greatness of the gift that you've received. See, the condemnation of the Jews is just as just as the condemnation of the Gentiles because what? Everybody deserves the same fate because we're all guilty. There's no excuse. See, he says, are the Jews any better off? Even though they had advantages, even though they were the people of God, had circumcision, had the law, are they any better off? No, not at all. Then he goes on, he says, for we have already charged that, and he's using a judicial term, we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. They're addicted to sin. They're enslaved to sin. They can't do anything about it. And then he goes on, he says, look at this, none, no one, not one, no one, all. This is a pretty depressing series of verses here, right? I doubt many of us have them memorized. I doubt many of us, you know, we have little kids, you know, honey, let's go, let's go memorize these verses. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. Come on, say it to me. We probably should to drive into their heads the reality of who we all are in Christ without Christ. But he says, look at this, all negative. No one, none, all have turned aside. No one does good, not even one. Now he's, he's quoting from the Old Testament. He's using psalms. He's, he's multiple passages that he's bringing together into one little kind of brick-to-the-face statement to get them to understand what? All throughout the Old Testament, we've been told that nobody is what? Righteous before God. No one. No one does good. No one seeks God. Like see, their mouth is full of curses. Their, their feet are swift to do evil. And you sit there and go, well, that's, no, that's not me. Yes, it is. Every day, no. To the nth degree, no. Do you live like this? Completely, no. But there are moments in every one of our lives that these things are true of us. And if left to our own devices, what? We will go there. As we said last week, but for the grace of God, go I. Because that's the natural propensity of every human being that has ever lived and ever will live. So by the works of the law, he says in verse 20, no one, no human being will ever be justified in his sight since through the law comes nothing but the knowledge of sin. You will never get right with God through self-effort. That's why when you uh, share the gospel with, with somebody, don't, don't give them a list of things to do. You know, well, if you'll just come to church with me. You know, is it wrong to invite them to church? No, but don't let them confuse going to church with getting right with God. Because I know people who go to church every stinking Sunday and who are not right with God. They just go to church a lot. It's not about what we do. It's about what's been done for us. So it's not the law. It's not keeping laws. It's about the righteousness of God. And he says, the righteousness of God, his brand of righteousness has been revealed. How? It's been revealed through his son. It's revealed how? Through faith in Christ. That's how we get made right with God. For all Jew or Gentile who believe. It's the same for all of us. Everybody's on common ground. So his, 
Righteousness has been revealed. It's been manifested. It's been made known through Christ. He sent his son to the earth to die on the cross for my sins and your sins. In order that we might have forgiveness, yes. But see, justification, one of the things you and I need to understand about justification is if justification is just the forgiveness of sins, that's incomplete. And I think I used this illustration with you before. If you were $100,000 in debt and you had no way to pay the debt and somebody paid your debt, gave you $100,000, paid off your debt, what would your balance be? Zero. That's not righteousness. That's just not indebtedness. What does it say we need to please God? Righteousness. So what does God do? See, justification doesn't bring you to zero. It brings you the righteousness of God so that we might be right with him. It's not just forgiveness of sins. We, we relish the idea of forgiveness of sins. I got my sins forgiven. Great. But do you live righteously? A lack of sin will not get you to heaven. Think about that. A lack of sin just leaves you at a zero. You need righteousness. And the only place we get righteousness is from who? From God. From his son, Jesus Christ. All, verse 24. Well, let's go back to 23, which we're all familiar with. All have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God, and are justified, made right with God. How? By his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a satisfaction of his just demand. He had to die. His blood had to be shed. Why? Because your blood needed to be shed. You needed to die to pay for your sins. But instead, what happens? He sends his son to die on your behalf to provide you with the righteousness you would never be able to provide. And it's always received by faith. And that's how God showed his righteousness. By sending his son. And again, I think we take that way too much for granted. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. And he put up with sins that men committed for centuries. Could God have destroyed the world again like he did in Noah's day? Absolutely. But he didn't. Why? Because he knew he was sending his son at just the right time. Did Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon, every patriarch in the Old Testament, did they deserve to die for their sins? Yes. But God forbore, put up with their sins in order that he might send his son. See, if God had punished David the way David deserved for the way he lived his life, guess who never would have come? Jesus. So he put up with their sins. He put up with the sins of Israel so that the son of David, Jesus Christ, could come, be born, die, rise again, and provide you and I with righteousness to show his righteousness at the present time. And it's always by faith. One is justified by faith apart from works of the law, and there's no reason we should boast. I am no better than anybody else on this planet. I have no more righteousness than anybody that's ever lived. I'm no more just. I'm no more right. I'm no more deserving than anybody that lives around me and lives with me. I don't deserve it, and there's no reason for me to boast. 
See, Paul tells the Ephesians, God saved you by his grace when you believed and you can't take credit for it. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. Hey, look at me. I'm a Christian. I must be better than you because God chose me. No. What are we getting out of this? I am blessed. I am so grateful. I am so blown away that I get to be right with God because of Jesus Christ. Because I didn't deserve it. And see, I think that perspective will change the way you look at the world around you. The way you perceive people who are not like you, who don't live like you, who do things you don't like and don't appreciate. And you will be less judgmental because you'll realize, but for the grace of God, go on. If God had not sent his son, I wouldn't be here. There's no place for us to boast in any of this. So you're justified. You're circumcised. You're changed from the inside out by faith. God will justify, not you. God will make you right, not you. Always through faith. So the righteousness we need is available how? Through faith. This summer, we're going to do something a little bit different. Just so you know, we're going to do a uh, probably about an eight-week series during the summer. So if you want to come and study, it'll probably be just on Thursday nights. But we're going to do an eight-week series, and we're going to just do Hebrews chapter 11. Because I want to spend some time with you talking about what is faith. See, we guys have turned faith into a work. That I somehow got to ma- master up, muster up, create faith. I got I to build up some faith. And we've turned faith into a work. But what you're going to see as you study chapter 11 of Hebrews, looking at all these great patriarchs, is faith is not something I muster up. Faith is not an object. It's what I'm putting my faith in. It's him. It's his justice. It's his sanctification. It's his gift. It's not something I muster up. It's the object I put my faith in. And so we're going to spend eight weeks looking at that. It's always about faith. Faith alone. In who? In Christ alone. And that is the righteousness of God. And it's from faith for faith. It's always about faith. Even though you and I need to do good works and we need to live righteously and live like Christ and pursue righteousness and do all the things the New Testament tells us to do, how are we to do that? By faith. See, I don't know about you, but I have a hard time being a good dad. I have a hard time being a good husband. I I have a hard time living a Christian life. And if I try to do it in my flesh, if I try to do it in my own strength, I always fail. I've always got to remember I do all of it by faith. I always have to remember that the strength I need comes from him. It doesn't come from me. That's why I spend time in the Word. That's why I read the Word. That's why I try to memorize the Word, meditate on the Word. That's why we pray. That's why we do the things we do, because I need even the faith to live the the life I've been called to live. It's always about faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Those who are righteous by placing their faith in Christ will live their lives based on faith. It's how we do it. If you struggle with your walk, if you struggle with living the Christian life, it's because you're not living by faith. You're living in the flesh. You're trying to please God. You're trying to do things to keep him happy. And that is still works righteousness. So here's your question for your discussion. What are some ways in which you try to score points with God? Now, don't look at me like a deer in the headlights. I don't do that. 
Sure you do. Sure you do. Or you at least make a list of things you know you need to do and then you don't do them. But what are the things you try to do to score points with God? What kinds of things do you do that you hope will keep him or keep you in his favor? Quiet time, prayer, go to this Bible study, even though you don't want to be here. Whatever it is, what do you do to earn favor with God? And why would Paul say that's a dangerous game to play? So let me pray for you. Lord, I pray that you would move mightily around the tables this morning as guys have this conversation. Lord, may it be deep. May it be rich. May it be honest. May we be truthful, transparent. May we not be afraid to say what we truly think. And that, Father, we would all realize that we need to grasp the gospel more than we ever have before. We need to have faith in what's been done and not worry quite so much about what do I need to go do. Father, may we understand that anything we have to do, need to do, is only going to be based on how much we believe the truth about the gospel, that we have the power of God, the righteousness of God, the forgiveness of God. We have all these things already. Everything I need, Peter says, I have for life and godliness already. May we truly believe that and live like it. And so, Father, bless this time around the tables, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's your turn.